everyone, welcome back after some very busy and challenging months. All of us at the NetRag Plus team hope you are keeping as safe and as well as can be given the current circumstances. I'm Shao and I'm an ED trainee at Newham, who usually writes the blog posts over on our NetRag Plus website. However, this month I am filling in for Chris, who I think is becoming a father literally as I record this. So we thought we should probably let him have the day off. Chris, if you're listening, we all hope everything goes smoothly and can't wait to meet the little one soon. This month, we wanted to speak a little bit about the COVID vaccines. We acknowledge that there have been many conversations, both in person and on various forms of social media, regarding the vaccine and specifically relating to poor uptake and vaccine hesitancy. These can be difficult exchanges to have with our friends, family, colleagues and patients at the best of times, let alone after months of physically and emotionally exhausting work. So we wanted to try and help. First, by exploring why hesitancy might exist, particularly in certain populations. And second, by thinking how we might facilitate an open and effective discourse with those who might have questions or differing viewpoints. First, we're going to speak to Rula Arwood about why vaccine hesitancy might exist. Hi, Shell. I have a background in machine learning and building technologies that help understand how political narratives impact society and keep people safe from online harms. I'm currently working with various governments to help combat misinformation and disinformation for COVID vaccine rollouts. So Rula, from your work, what can you tell us are the main reasons for why vaccine hesitancy exists? And is there a difference between the anti-vaccine movement and vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, first I'd like to say that there's no agreed definition of anti-vax or vaccine hesitancy, but we have some working definitions. So anti-vaxxers are anti-vaccine for all vaccines, and they are largely considered to be informed by disinformation. Vaccine hesitancy, on the other hand, is more on a spectrum and has been defined by the World Health Organization as a reluctance or refusal to vaccinate. In the context of COVID, what we're seeing are people who previously would have been vaccinated or taken vaccines become hesitant towards the COVID vaccine specifically. This can occur for a range of reasons. On one end of the spectrum, this may be due to COVID denialism or the idea that COVID is little more than a flu, which is being exaggerated to manufacture consent for more government control over the population. For example, a one world government or a new world order. And some of these theories have been given platform by certain world leaders also, particularly early on in the pandemic. On the other end of the spectrum are those who are simply uncertain about the efficacy and safety of the vaccine. For example, there is some mistrust that exists around the rapid turnaround time of vaccine development for COVID. This mistrust appears most prevalent in women and young people who appear most likely to want to wait 6 to 12 months before taking the vaccine to allow for a period of observation. And this may seem rational to understandable fear if we are to assume that vaccines should take a long time to develop. However, listening to those involved in vaccine development, we also know that in no prior time in history, so many resources, money and heads been thrown at a problem. This has enabled lab staff to organise their work by day and night shifts to ensure there's no unnecessary delay in vaccine development. Government has minimised any red tape that usually exists with taking a vaccine to market. And a lot of the scientific knowledge, for example, around mRNA technology isn't really new. It's the accrual of 20 or more years of scientific work. In fact, the Oxford team have been working with coronaviruses for 10 years prior to vaccine development. 
So yes, things have occurred at lightning speed, but this is more indicative of the unprecedented urgency resources and collaboration offered rather than any shortcuts in safety. In fact, the Wellcome Trust have used this amazing analogy recently to exemplify this. It's a bit like driving across a busy city in rush hour. Normally, you spend lots of time waiting at traffic lights, but when you have a police escort, say, you can take the same journey and get to the same place just as safely, but much faster. Yeah, I really like that analogy. I think it's also interesting the level of engagement and scrutiny that this COVID vaccine has come up against compared to the seasonal flu vaccine in particular, which is technically revised and developed annually according to the strains that are predicted to be prevalent that year. But the seasonal flu vaccine actually has lower efficacy and yet uptake is quite high, approximately 70% in the UK, compared to the COVID vaccine. Why do you think this kind of discrepancy exists? Yeah, I think there are two factors at play here. The first is the novel nature of this virus. It's not household name in the same way the flu is, um, which means that there's an element of learning that we have to go through, which the public seems less comfortable with because it allows for greater variation in advice. And the second, and I think this is the most important factor, um, is how we as a scientific community communicate during a pandemic. Arguably, there have been times where information has been provided from the government or healthcare bodies that have either left knowledge gaps or not stressed the dynamic nature of the learning process with regards to COVID. Uh, Take, for example, uh, the advice on masks. Initially, we were told masks were not required and later changing that message by saying that they are and then eventually that they're mandatory. And what this does is it confuses the public and undermines trust in the advice that's been given as absolute truths keep changing. Well, that's how it seems. And this started early on in the pandemic. However, communicating effectively and transparently that initial evidence does not suggest mask wearing helps to slow down transmission but that further research is required to inform any future advice is quite powerful because what it does is it leaves the door open for change and it also prepares the hive mind for evidence-based changes in advice or recommendations later on. So it takes people with you rather than giving them whiplash by making abrupt changes and not being clear why. Most importantly, it maintains trust. Because when you erode trust at times of great uncertainty, you encourage people to fill the gaps themselves either with their own internet searches or theories, in order to make sense of what's happening at that particular time, where definitive answers don't actually exist by the novel nature of the problem. And that's what's happened here. So I think what you're saying here, Rula, is that a lack of ground truth combined with poor communication surrounding these seems to have made people more susceptible to misinformation and plugging in the gaps themselves. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And just to explain what ground truths are and why it's important to your listeners, it's basically the data or information we obtain from direct observation or primary research and not just inference. So it's the empirical evidence we eventually use to mandate masks, for example. And given the novel nature of COVID, we are concurrently collecting data whilst also communicating its significance, which does leave gaps in information until further observation and study is performed. And through your work, is there evidence that such gaps have been exploited by different groups for other purposes and other agendas? 
Yeah, so we've seen them be exploited in two ways. The first is online, when people experience a lack of certainty, especially when isolated, with a surplus of time on their hands. We've seen more people go online to look for answers. In some cases, this manifests as online tribalism. For example, with the emergence of organizations such as QAnon, who appear to have unified all conspiracy theorists under one umbrella of COVID denialism. So all different supremacists, spiritual movements have all combined to deny COVID and speak in favor of um, this one world government conspiracy theory. Um, to give you an example, I remember when the World Economic Forum talked about creating opportunity um, out of this COVID tragedy by building a more sustainable and ethical form of capitalism after the pandemic under the title of The Great Reset. This created a complete uproar amongst conspiracy theorists who felt that this was confirmation of their beliefs um, that COVID is government made. Um, so you can see how with online silos, some actors use information to push their own agendas. And it's important to note that there is less uncertainty with this tactic, which can be very attractive and very comforting in a time where there's so much change. And that is to always have an answer and always have things make sense, which is not something that empirical evidence can always do, at least not responsibly straight away without extensive study. The second way information gaps can be exploited is by international actors weaponizing misinformation. This was particularly pronounced in the propaganda war around vaccines. One example that comes to mind is that of the 29 deaths that took place in Norway after their vaccine drive started. The Norwegian health ministry explained that they had given their vaccines to the sickest, frailest and oldest people in their population initially. So statistically expected some incidental deaths due to other underlying causes in this group. Um, but the correlation and causation had to be studied further. And some countries use this information prematurely to undermine the vaccines that were given in order to champion their own domestic ones. And this was seized upon by conspiracy theorists to promote anti-vaccine content online. Yeah, and I think this will be a really interesting and important area to watch as we see the rise of vaccine diplomacy and how kind of the soft power of vaccines may be used to influence national interests and international relationships. I think that's happening quite a lot in Asia. So coming back to the UK, can you tell us which demographics um, and which groups of people are more associated with vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, so again, this is difficult to say absolutely because we don't have national survey responses. But what we do have is some indication, some smaller scale and early surveys and studies that suggest that black, Asian, minority ethnic groups are the most vulnerable. So just to give you an example, a longitudinal study involving the University of Glasgow, Essex, Public Health Scotland, Ipsos Mori uh, also shows that vaccine hesitancy was higher uh, in women in younger groups aged between 16 to 24 year olds uh, that people without higher education tended to be more vaccine hesitant and in terms of demographics um, it also illustrated that vaccine hesitancy was particularly higher in black and Pakistani Bangladeshi communities um, than in white communities for example. What surprised me the most about this information actually is that these patterns prevailed amongst healthcare staff as well uh, for example, a large NHS trust in England, which is Guy's St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, reported that 80% of medical staff had been vaccinated, but only a quarter of all back members of staff had been, and that this uptake was even lower amongst Filipino staff members. It's important to note that a lot of this data is preliminary and localised, so we should be careful drawing too many conclusions from this. But work is already underway to understand these phenomena 
more deeply and to address hesitancy going forwards. So, I mean, as a, as a listener at home, I'm thinking we sound like some of our highest risk groups in terms of the likelihood for becoming seriously unwell or dying from COVID. So you've got healthcare professionals and people from BAME backgrounds. Why do you think the very populations that disproportionately suffer the complications of this infection appear to be also those least likely to get vaccinated against it? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, And I think this is where context is really important. It can seem non-congruent, as you say. However, there is a very real mistrust of authority and government in some of these communities. And some of this is actually quite justified. Uh, Take, for example, the Tuskegee syphilis scandal, where black men with syphilis were promised free medical care after six months of being part of a clinical trial, but were actually left for 40 years without treatment, just so that the authorities can better understand how syphilis spread across certain communities. Um, And this is just one horrific example in quite a long list of examples where uh, members of BAME have historically been let down by those which promise to protect them. And the impact of this is actually quite pervasive. And as a result, minority communities are easy targets for disinformation. For example, the belief that some vaccines contain beef, pork or aborted fetuses. On occasion, these have come from particular countries and then spread across the diaspora communities in the UK online via, for example, WhatsApp groups to dissuade them from taking up vaccines. So some of the reasons underlying vaccine hesitancy stem from individual and group experiences of healthcare, while others relate more to inclusion and access to credible information is what I'm hearing. What kind of work is happening to address these? Yeah, so I think the reversal of vaccine hesitancy is quite a hard one, and it's going to require quite a major consistent effort. These efforts will continue as well, like way after the pandemic is a distant memory for us. Uh, Because a lot of this mistrust exists and impacts um, many other areas of life. Uh, That being said, we've learned some really important lessons that we can carry forward with us. Um, So the first we've learned is the importance of community buy-in. For example, some vaccine drives were set up in places of worship, for example, mosques, which dispelled myths around uh, non-halal vaccine ingredients um, being used. Um, We also saw faith leaders being engaged, for example, when the chief rabbi condemned members of the Orthodox Jewish community for organising a large group events during lockdown. Secondly, we also learned the importance of clear communication, which is sensitive to the experiences of others. For example, when SAGE initially suggested vaccinating minority groups first due to the disproportionate impact of infection in these groups, in some instances, this was perceived as trialling the vaccine on ethnic communities before a proper rollout. Um, And this isn't actually an irrational fear because it's happened in some countries in the past, so should be addressed compassionately rather than dismissed, for example. And finally, I think we really need to have a wider discussion about how to handle communication and the very nature of democracy in these uh, pressing times. In a global emergency, should we continue to have open discussions and communicate mistakes and uncertainties like we have done? Or should we exert greater control over information to ensure that everyone's on the same page and that there's uh, le- that they're less susceptible to misinformation, disinformation, there's less variation in behavior until this threat disappears? Um, should experts take charge of this discourse or should politicians continue to lead the narrative? I don't really know the answer to this, but I think it will be important to evaluate the very different international approaches and the different outcomes that they've um, had in the coming months and years of the pandemic. 
Thanks very much, Rula, for your time. And for all the work that you've put into this and and for helping us in the in the background trying to overcome vaccine hesitancy. Thank you so much, Shell. My name's Emma Young. I'm an AE consultant. When I'm not listening to NetReg Plus, I'm riding my bike, swimming in rivers and ignoring my children. Hi Sue. Shall we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what it is that you do? Hi Shell, thanks for including me in this podcast. Um, I work in leadership and organisational development, which means that I'm interested in how we grow and sustain effective, healthy organisations. I work a lot with um, clinical and professional leaders, um, supporting the development, particularly of emerging clinical leaders. Um, All of my work has been with public services, um, most particularly the NHS. Um, I also served as a non-executive director on a number of NHS boards over the years, And at the moment, I'm the vice chair of a mental health trust, um, where I chair the People and Culture Committee. And then in addition to that, and this is a shameless plug because it's entirely unrelated to what we're talking about, I'm the chair of trustees at a really brilliant charity called Bloody Good Period, which campaigns for menstrual equity and makes period products available to refugees and asylum seekers and people who can't access them another way. Brilliant. So lots of experience in different domains and presumably your fair share of experience navigating difficult conversations. Um, Thank you for joining us today. So my first question is, I work in the ED, as do many of our listeners, and we at best are knackered and sad um, and at worst probably a bit burnt out and disillusioned. My first question is, are we the right people to be having conversations about vaccines? I think that it's a very personal choice for um, clinicians in the ED as to whether they proactively seek out a conversation about vaccines and whether you have the energy to do that in in a proactive kind of a way. But I think that whether you choose it or seek it out or not, a conversation about vaccines and the safety of vaccines and whether people should have them or not is are going to come your way. People are going to ask you the question. They may ask you in your EDU role. They may ask you over a garden fence. Um, you know, you're a doctor, whether whether you're in a professional setting or whether you're not. And so I think that what I would hope that's, is that some of what I have to share today will help you to think about how you have that conversation if you choose to have it. Um, but I think these are these are very personal choices. It's it's you know it, you will know whether you have the resilience, the energy to do it at at a point in time. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So if if we do decide to have these conversations, and as you say, with patients, colleagues, or relatives and friends, what kind of tips or model would you share? can you share with us that are best to communicate in these kinds of conversations? I think that the first thing that I would say is we all have a kind of default style for how we share ideas with other people, how we seek to influence other people with the things that we think about all sorts of things. And I imagine that as a doctor and depending on your specialty, there will be a default style for how you work um, professionally. 
I think that the most important thing in, in beginning a, what is likely or could possibly be a difficult conversation is to bring to your awareness what your default style is. And the model or, or the ideas that I'm going to be sharing with you are about thinking about how you deploy a style that best responds to the situation that's presenting itself to you. I think a lot of people feel that they are just who they are and they bring themselves and they are authentically themselves. But I think a big part of being a professional is thinking about what's likely to work. And that applies as much to how you engage with people in these difficult conversations. So I think the, the first thing I would say about the model is it's not about being manipulative or inauthentic. It's about saying, as a professional, what's the style and approach that is most likely to help the message that I have to land with this person, to be received by this person. Um, so a big part of this is kind of bringing to awareness um, the style that you usually use and bringing to awareness whether that style is likely to work in the set of circumstances that are presenting themselves. I think that's the first thing that I would say. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that makes complete sense. So, so having the ability to flex depending on the environment, the conversation and the person in front of you. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the second thing that I would say is that in this, I've given a lot of thought to this question of how you have this vaccine conversation. And I think I bold claim here, I think it's more important. The most important thing is that you're influential. I think that in a lot of circumstances, we put a place a lot of emphasis and priority on being correct or being right. And obviously, it's important you share accurate information. It's important. But the most important thing is that you is that that information lands with the person. So I think that, you know, I think what I would say is that that being right is not of a great deal of value if you're also not influential. Um, and as I've said, being, you know, being influential is situational. There aren't good styles and bad styles. They're just more or less useful approaches, depending on, on the circumstances that you find yourself in. So with yeah. that as a background, would it help if I if we sort of identified maybe four possible ways that we, we tend to seek to influence other people? Would that be a helpful place to go next? Yeah, I think definitely. I, I mean, from my experience in ED, we're, we're very good at particular styles of influencing. I guess we're often in situations where there is a knowledge gradient um, and an experience gradient that is on our side. Um, so I guess the question that a lot of our listeners will be having is, what if we don't have that experience as with vaccines? We don't necessarily know what's going to happen and have all the answers that some people are going to want or be asking us. How do we navigate communicating with uncertainty? I think that's exactly the right set of questions. So I'm wanting to introduce you to four possible styles of influencing. Um, the first is asserting. The second is persuading. The third is bridging, and the fourth is attracting. And if we start with asserting, I can imagine that this is a style that in the ED you entirely appropriately use quite a lot of the time. Um, you might find yourself in a very urgent, immediately urgent situation. There's a high degree of risk. You might be warm and kind, but you're essentially issuing instructions. We're going to do this, wait there, I'm doing this, this is what's going to happen next. 
And the reason why that style works is because both parties have an immediate personal stake in its working. Certainly, if I was to come into ED in some kind of crisis, I would want you to be as assertive as you could possibly be. I'd want to hand over control to you. I'd want um, to recognize and, and, and intuitively would recognize your professionalism and your greater knowledge. And I would want to be compliant. And I think that that's often the set of perhaps not always but often the set of circumstances in which you find yourself and so in those situations asserting is an entirely appropriate style you're not really in a negotiation as I say you might be being warm and kind and considerate but but you are setting essentially get issuing a set of instructions for what's going to happen next um if we think about persuading also a, a somewhat push sort of a style um, that's likely to work in circumstances where there isn't an immediate risk or urgency, but where nonetheless the person has come to you for your competence, they reflect, they respect your competence, they respect your greater knowledge um, in, in the circumstances, but perhaps most importantly, they have their emotions largely under control. So they're in a conversation with you or in a discussion with you or you're in a discussion with them where um, alternatives to what you're suggesting are open to facts and reasoning. Um, people are not, they might be feeling, you know, if they're unwell, they might be feeling subliminally anxious, but they have their emotions largely under control and are able to make good and effective decisions. And you're perceived as objective. You're not perceived as having any kind of vested interest in, in a particular course of action. There is a perception of you as, a, as an objective, helpful, knowledgeable um, professional um, that people feel able to place their trust in. So, you know, I imagine that that's a way that you engage with patients quite a lot. There is a discussion, there's a negotiation, there's opportunity to explore the validity or the, uh, you know, the credibility of what you're saying, but people are largely um, respectful and um, confident in your, in your professionalism and your greater knowledge. Would that, yeah. would that resonate with you as, as, as a way of being? Definitely. I think those two are the, um, are the predominant methods of communication that we employ in the ED. Yeah. Um, and, and very different, um, which I'm sure you'll come on to, about regarding vaccines. Indeed. So so in both of those, if you look at um, you kind of what our kind of core source of authority is when we are seeking to influence somebody, there are three possible places that, you're, that could make you authoritative. One is that you have a particular position, you're a doctor. The other is that you have particular knowledge because you're a doctor. And the third source of authority is I'm going to listen to you because or I'm going to allow myself to be influenced by you because of the nature of the relationship that we have with one another. So if we turn our attention to vaccine hesitancy, and I know that your other guest on this podcast will have given lots of insight into what drives vaccine hesitancy. But let's let's look at the at the likely situation. So we've got a new virus. It's unpredictable. It's frightening. There's a feeling that everyone, including professionals, were kind of caught off guard, caught flat-footed. Um, very little about it feels certain. Um, it's new. We haven't had a lot of experience to depend on. Um, and, and so 
all of that would mean that people's kind of prevailing confidence in the reliability of institutions, in the reliability of professionals, their kind of usual confidence in you as a doctor or as a healthcare professional of another kind, isn't as assured. And so exactly as you said at the start of this conversation, the fact that you bring professional credibility or have done in other circumstances is much less useful in this, in this interaction. And so if we're looking at what source of authority or source of influence you're wanting to draw on, I guess the thing you're left with is, can I make a relationship with this person? Can I begin to draw on a source of authority that's about a growing trust between me and them, a sense that they have that I understand them, that I'm listening to them, that I'm hearing their concerns. I think the other thing, and again, I'm sure your other guest will have will have will have touched on this, is people bring all sorts of experiences of healthcare, both as an individual and as a member of a group. We know, for example, that women and members of Black, Asian, minority ethnic communities might often have had their concerns and symptoms disregarded. They may feel less easily listened to by professionals. Um, they may worry with some justification that certainly, perhaps not now, but certainly historically, um, for the purposes of testing medications and treatments, the default human's been a white man. Um, and they may feel that 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 you don't you can't be sure of of what the impact of a, of a vaccine might be on a person who, who, who looks like them. Um, on the other hand, they may bring really searing communal social memories of some very unethical um, pharmaceutical company behavior in the past. And so that might be a source of mistrust for them. And if you then place this against a kind of background anxiety about how much we really know um, and how much we can really have confidence in professionals and in institutions, you can begin to see how um, vaccine hesitancy takes, takes root. And I think if we then look at the other dimension that we were talking about um, in terms of how you select your, your influencing style, by definition, people emotion will not have their emotions under control. They will be feeling frightened and anxious. And so the kinds of influencing styles that rely on people feeling like they're on an emotional even keel or a relatively even keel emotionally um, also, also becomes an issue in, the, in an interaction with somebody who's feeling anxious and worried about a vaccine. So these might be people who in every other walk of life, in every other circumstance, might be perfectly able to have a reasoned conversation, to make use of evidence, to make good judgments. But there is something about the set of triggers here that has made that less easy for them. And I think that that really needs to be the starting point is not this is somebody who's unable to evaluate evidence or unable to distinguish disinformation. This is a person for whom something about the set of circumstances has triggered a very anxious and uncertain response and they're finding it very difficult to place their confidence in, in the information that's being made available to them. Um, and I think that the final thing that I would say is that disinformation, inaccurate information, has meant that, that the so-called facts around, around vaccines are contested. And one of the things that has resulted from that is that there's a sense that some people have that there are vested interests at play here. And it's very 
easy for people to come to believe that you as a doctor represent those vested interests if um, pushing, driving, compliance-inducing styles of influencing, even if however nice, polite, kind, gentle you might be being, if your approach is one of, I have the facts, here are the facts, um, and if you if you find those facts difficult to assimilate, then, then there's something wrong with, with the way in which you're making decisions. You can see how, how, they would, how people would come to start to believe that perhaps you have a vested interest here um, as the conspiracy theories or the disinformation that they're reading um, warns them of. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely. And that's something I've experienced, not with the COVID vaccine, but with um, childhood immunizations is people have um, got quite upset with me when I've brought it up um, and kind of implied that our, I and all other health professionals are in bed with pharmaceutical companies and those are where our interests lie. So I think that's that already existed um, before COVID, but it's definitely been brought to the forefront because of this vacuum uh, and this and and the kind of loss of trust, I guess, in in different establishments and authorities to to protect people. Right. So I guess what we're saying then is, in those circumstances, probably the most important thing that you can seek to do in trying to engage with the person that you're talking to on the question of vaccines is to build. Um, a relationship bridge um, between between you and them, because as we've as we've said, your professionalism isn't the bridge, your knowledge gradient isn't the bridge, so it has to be the relationship that becomes the bridge. And so, probably the most important tools that you're going to need to deploy are listening and empathy and understanding, and really, really being mindful of avoiding even tacitly challenging the person's anxiety as unevidenced or irrational. Does that, yeah? So, so even typically, it's really important to manage your behavior so that what you're doing is trying to explore the source of this person's anxiety. Um, so I can imagine that for, for a, 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 prof a healthcare professional, that might feel like you're lending credence to conspiracy theories or unevidenced theories. And I, and I think you're not. You're just trying to understand what it is that is fueling the person that you're talking to's anxiety. Um, you're recognizing that those fears and worries are real and that they're valid in the sense that they're real for that person. They feel they are affecting that person's behavior. So in that sense, there is a validity to listening and hearing um, those concerns and worries and anxieties because they feel real to the person that you're talking to. And, and if you're able to generate um, that kind of bridge between you and the person, then what you, set, what you set up is the possibility that this person might hear the message or hear the information that you're wanting to give them, not because you're a doctor, not because you have necessarily have more knowledge, but because you're a person who has heard their anxieties and wants to support them in a conversation not because you're right and in command of the facts as a professional. Yeah, completely. Um, and I, th I think also there's there's a lot of 
common ground as well in that there are prof health professionals including myself that when earlier on in the in the journey when the vaccines were released or announced had our own questions and wanted to do our own research and so i'm sure there'll be a lot of fears that we hear that we that we experienced just maybe a bit earlier on in the process um so i think some of that can be really valuable in in sharing yeah i was worried about this too or i looked into this too and i think it humanizes us a little bit because we're not just health professionals we're also like you said human beings that took or are going to take the vaccine as well and making a decision about whether to take it That's this month's episode wrapped, guys. Thanks to Rula and Sue for their time and wisdom on the topic. I think the greatest lesson I'll take away is that how we talk and listen during complex disagreements such as these is often more impactful than what we are actually saying. It's also probably a lesson that applies far beyond the realm of COVID and vaccines. So maybe on your next commute home, Think about what worked the last time someone completely changed your mind about something. Was it listening to their facts alone? Was it because they disproved your opinion? And how did you feel when they did this? Or was it because they listened and acknowledged your position? What worked and what didn't? Also, do remember to visit the NetRag Plus website for our accompanying blog post. And if you haven't already, listen to our first ever episode, which specifically covers racism and COVID-19 and may provide further insight into the mistrust that feeds vaccine hesitancy. We'd also love you to let us know what you think. Get in touch on Twitter, Instagram, or on our website. And thanks for listening to NetRag Plus. Stay safe, guys.